Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. And today's podcast is brought to you by a reader of the Straight A Nursing website, whose name is Charlotte. And thank you, Charlotte, for the excellent suggestion that we talk about shock. So today we are going to be talking about the basics of shock, the four types what you're going to assess, and how you're going to treat these patients. We're also trying something a little bit different, and I hope that it works, where we're going to be taking these longer, more extensive topics and posting them as both a podcast and a blog post. I'm trying to figure out the mechanics of that so that the iTunes description is not the entire 3,000 plus word blog post because I think that would be a little bit cumbersome. I think I've got it figured out, but if for some reason I didn't and you're getting this on your iTunes with a ridiculously long episode notes section, it is because I failed miserably in my quest to be technologically savvy. So anyway, let's get started talking about shock. So what is it exactly? The very short answer is that shock is a syndrome of hypotension slash hypoperfusion that leads to inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues and impaired cellular metabolism. And this is ultimately going to cause organ dysfunction or if it gets really bad organ failure. So let's kind of back up and go through each of these things all as a whole. So the first thing is the state of hypotension, low blood pressure, guys. That's what we're talking about with shock. Now, just because hypotension is a classic sign of shock does not mean that it's going to be one of the very first signs of shock. It's actually kind of a late sign, but just know that hypotension that you can see happening with your patient, with their vital signs and all of that is a big part of the shock picture. Then we talk about the hypoperfusion, the oxygen not getting to the tissues. This is going to cause that global tissue hypoxia. Then I mentioned the impaired cellular metabolism. So what's all that about? So when the cells aren't getting enough oxygen, they obviously are not going to function properly. So what happens is they shift into anaerobic metabolism, and this is where that Krebs cycle that you guys learned in microbiology, 
anatomy and physiology, probably also chemistry, where that really comes into play. So that Krebs cycle comes into play here. The cells are in their anaerobic metabolism producing that byproduct of lactate, which ultimately will lead to a metabolic acidosis. You may also hear it called a lactic, lactic acidosis. And then the final thing that we talked about was the organ dysfunction and failure. When the organs don't get the oxygen they need and when the cells don't get the oxygen they need and everything goes haywire, you end up with organ failure. Now, in all states of shock, there will be some level of organ dysfunction, which is what is causing all the weird vital signs and things that you see with your patient. But if you catch it in time, hopefully you can get to the patient and get them treated before they go into actual organ failure. So before we get into talking about the four classifications of shock, I want to share with you a little analogy that was presented to me when I learned about shock for the first time by the awesome Dr. Brady at my college in Sacramento. And it's the concept of the pump and the bucket. So we're not talking about gardening, we're talking about the heart and the vasculature. So if you think of the heart as a pump, that's really going to help you think about the mechanics of how that heart plays in with shock. So the pump is either working adequately Maybe it's working in overdrive, or maybe it's not working or pumping hard enough. So when the pump fails, that means the heart is failing. And then we have the bucket, which is essentially the vasculature. So if you think about the heart, the arteries, the capillaries, the veins, all of that stuff being a closed system, think of it as a very strangely shaped bucket and that bucket can either be full of fluid or depleted of fluid. You could also have a bucket that's way too big for the amount of fluid you have or bucket that has been shrunk down to compensate for a smaller amount of fluid perhaps. So as we talk about the different types of shock, this concept of the pop and the bucket will hopefully come into play and help you make sense of things a little bit easier. Now let's talk about the four classifications of shock, how you're going to differentiate between each one, and then later on we'll talk about some of the more specific signs and treatments related to each classification. But just right now for a little overview, we have hypovolemic shock, we have distributive shock, there's cardiogenic shock, and obstructive shock. So hypovolemic shock is what occurs when the body is basically losing too much fluid. Note that this could be blood or it could be just straight up fluid. So you'll often hear it may be referred to as hypovolemic hemorrhagic shock or non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. So you might hear it classified whether or not the patient's bleeding or not. So obviously traumas, GI bleeds, things like that can cause a hypovolemic shock. If you're interested in learning more about GI bleeds, I invite you to go to the Straight A Nursing student website and do a little quick search for that in the search bar. Very recently, we did a whole post about GI bleeds. And then the patient could also go into hypo, hypovolemic shock from losing too much fluid. Maybe they are vomiting uncontrollably or having a lot of diarrhea like with a patient with C. diff infection or they have a lot of polyuria 
perhaps their third spacing, perhaps they have burns, lots of reasons that a patient could go into hypovolemic shock from losing fluid. So what happens here is that your venous return is decreased and then cardiac output follows. And if you want a little refresher on how cardiac output and stroke volume and heart rate all kind of play in together with your patient's blood pressure, just in the last couple weeks, we did a post about blood pressure. So again, if you need a refresher on that, take a little pause right here, go read that and then come back. Next one is distributive shock. So this basically, we talked about that bucket. The bucket is too big in distributive shock. The main form of distributive shock that we see in the clinical setting is septic shock. You could also see anaphylaxis. That's a form of distributive shock. Spinal trauma can cause a neurogenic shock. Some endocrine disorders can cause this, but mainly we'll be talking about anaphylaxis, sepsis, and neurogenic shock later on. And basically the idea here is that, again, your bucket is too big. Your peripheral vascular resistance is decreased in distributive shock. Because the peripheral vascular resistance is decreased, you have hypotension, etc., etc. Then we have cardiogenic shock. This is a pump problem. The pump is failing in cardiogenic shock. Lots of times you see this with your patient who's had a great big old MI, um, especially with that uh, main descending artery. You could have it with arrhythmias, cardiomyopathy, Congestive heart failure can get really bad. Patients got some left-sided heart failure and bam, they're in cardiogenic shock. And then we have obstructive shock. This is basically what it sounds like. There is some kind of a barrier such as like cardiac tamponade, maybe it's a pulmonary embolism, a tumor, even a tension pneumothorax. It's anything that's going to obstruct the circulating volume of blood in the body. So in those great vessels or in the heart itself. So let's move on now and talk about some of the general assessment parameters for your patient in shock, at risk for shock, or that you think could potentially be getting into trouble. So basically, you're going to be doing a very thorough examination of all of your patients, right? The things that are really going to come into play and tip you off that your patient is having a shock problem, the main ones would be their heart rate, um, their respiratory rate, their respiratory effort, obviously their blood pressure, but definitely not early on. If the patient's hypotensive, you've missed a lot of clues already. Their level of consciousness or mentation, maybe they're agitated, confused, restless, somnolent, obtunded, all of those things occur on the spectrum of shock. Urine output is a really great thing to watch for, but again, it's not going to be one of the first. And their skin signs. So obviously, all of those things are part of your very thorough head-to-toe assessment, and they're all going to kind of come into play here when we look at a patient who is in shock, regardless of what phase of shock they're in. So you might hear the phases or stages of shock referred to by names or classes. So we'll use both of them here just so you understand what we're talking about. So class one or initial shock is the very first part. At this stage, it's going to be really hard to see that there's something wrong with your patient. The body is typically at this stage compensating for that 
altered metabolism, the reduced cardiac output, the reduced venous return, whatever's causing the problem, the body is compensating for it. So it's going to compensate by elevating the heart rate a little bit, maybe not enough for you to even notice. And that is one of the tricky things about shock. Lots of things can cause an elevated heart rate. It could be pain. It could be anxiety. It could be fever. It could be any of those things. So super easy to miss. Let's say your patient's resting heart rate is 65 and a few hours later it's now 85. Okay, that's still totally normal heart rate, right? But it's a pretty good change from where they were earlier. So you would still want to investigate even though it's completely normal. So mildly tachycardic. Think about the trend that the patient has had over the last 24 hours and see if based on their trend, they are now more tachycardic. Okay. So even if they're not above hundred, you could still be thinking maybe there's something going on here. Same thing goes for respiratory rate. The patient could be mildly tachypnic in this class one initial shock phase. Again, super easy to miss. Your patient's going to be breathing a little bit faster because a couple reasons. We've got impaired oxygen delivery to the tissues, right? So that's going to make the person want to take in more oxygen. And then with that metabolic acidosis, the body's going to try to compensate by breathing faster, blowing off CO2. So if you need a refresher on that, I believe it might be covered in one of our ABG posts. So if you search for ABGs or acid base, something should hopefully come up regarding that. Again, respiratory rate could be up simply because of pain or anxiety. So again, super easy to miss this one as well. Blood pressure, we talked about being not necessarily an early sign. So at this point in this class one initial shock phase, the blood pressure is probably normal. The heart rate has come up to compensate. So you might see a little bit of a downward trend if you looked back, but it wouldn't be enough hypotension at this point to set off alarm bells, but maybe you're seeing a slightly downward trend, okay? Urine output is probably normal at this time. If you look at the patient's skin, this is probably going to be the very first thing that you can see. And that is why when you're doing your initial assessment of the patient, get down to their skin. Don't put your stethoscope on the gown and listen through the gown. Close the curtain. Explain to the patient that I need to see your skin in order to do a full assessment. If they're in the intensive care, you absolutely need to be doing that. Pull the curtain, remove the gown, don't like take the whole gown off, but you know, pull the gown aside so you can see their skin. Put your stethoscope against their skin so you get a really good auscultation of their heart sounds and their lung sounds, but also at the same time, you're looking at their skin. Look at their hands, look at their feet, look at their extremities. A lot of times, in most cases of shock, the extremities are going to get a little bit cool. Now, again, think of your little old ladies who are always cold and bundled up and wearing four pairs of socks. So you would just have to ask the patient, is this your, are your hands and feet always cool? If they say no, then maybe they're heading towards shock. You have to have a very high index of suspicion at this stage in order to catch it. Um, I would say that 
In distributive shock, the skin might actually feel warmish, but in all the other types of shock, it's probably going to be slightly cool at the extremities, okay? And then your patient's mentation. With initial shock, class one, your patient's likely to be a little anxious and a little restless. If they can't really pinpoint why they're feeling restless or anxious, it's very possible that the brain just isn't getting quite enough perfusion and that's causing this change in mentation. So any one of these things by themselves, most of the time you would not think much of it, right? Your patient's heart rate's up 10 or 15 beats. The respiratory rate's up from 12 to 18 or 20. Their hands are a little bit cold, but maybe they're a little old lady and their hands are always cold. Who knows? Their urine output's normal, but they're a little anxious. Well, they're anxious. So maybe that's why their heart rate and respiratory rate are up. See what I mean? It can be very, very difficult to catch shock at this stage. So then we get into class two or what we also call compensatory shock. And here is where you're probably most likely to catch on that something's happening with your patient. So as the decreased tissue perfusion continues, the body's going to trigger the sympathetic nervous system to kick in and help us out. So when the SNS is activated, all kinds of things start going on. So the heart rate's going to go up even more. This is in an effort to keep cardiac output up, okay? Then we've got some vasoconstriction happening on the blood vessels. This will also help to keep blood pressure up. So if you remember a while back, we made the analogy of a garden hose. And I think it's in that blood pressure post from a couple weeks back. When you put your finger, your thumb over the end of a garden hose, what happens to the force of the water coming out of the hose? right? It sprays really hard. Well, that's basically what's happening when we squeeze down on the blood vessels. It causes the blood to flow with greater force, increasing blood pressure. So this is all a result of that Renin and system. And you might just remember or tuck it away that angiotensin II is a really potent vasoconstrictor. So that's the endocrine response causing that vasoconstriction. The SNS is also going to cause the respiratory rate to go up. Now your patient might be breathing in the high 20s, even to like 30, 31, 32 or so. This is not great for your patient. I would have to say it's not uncommon to have a patient breathing at that rate. Again, anxiety, pain are great things to blame when your patient has elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, and all of those things. So again, having that high index of suspicion is going to help you pinpoint that your patient could be in trouble. The SNS is also going to cause the blood sugar levels to go up via glucogenolysis. I am sure I said that wrong, but that's when the liver breaks down the glycogen and converts it into glucose. You're going to have hyperglycemia in even non-diabetic patients when they're going into a shock state. So if you're checking a blood sugar, all of a sudden it's high, that's definitely something to investigate further. The urine output at this point could start to be trending down. So a couple of reasons for this is the endocrine system 
is going to get a signal that the body's in trouble, okay? And it's going to put out more of that ADH antidiuretic hormone in hopes that the kidneys, the renal system will hold on to fluid so that we can maintain our blood pressure. So you're going to be peeing less. And then also the kidneys, when they're hypoperfused, are going to start failing. And that is also going to contribute to decreased urine output. So you really are going to be watching urine output very carefully in these patients. You might hear things like decreased bowel sounds. And this is because the body's going to start getting really smart, right? It's going to start shunting blood away from what it considers non-vital organs to the brain and to the heart. So your gut that was working great this morning might not be so active at the end of your shift. And that's because of the body shunting blood from less vital organs to the more important ones. At this point, you can also be having delayed cap refill. The extremities will most definitely be feeling cooler at this point. And again, just I cannot stress enough how critical a good skin assessment is. You may see diaphoresis at this point and your patient getting more agitated, more restless. So that was class two compensatory shock. Signs more obvious. Probably going to catch it at this phase and feel like you caught it early because you did a pretty good job seeing those things and attributing it to a problem with your patient before things spiraled out of control. But let's say you didn't. Maybe the patient didn't even come into the ED until they were already really sick. So now they're in progressive shock or class three. So this patient is sick. And this is a lot of the patients that we see in intensive care. So at this point, all those compensatory mechanisms that the body was doing are starting to fail. Because the body can only do that for so long. And at this point, we just can't keep hemostasis up. We can't keep a blood pressure is basically what we're saying. So if this is when you're going to start seeing that hypotension, okay? So if you thought hypotension was the first thing you were going to notice in a shock patient, you're already in stage three or class three progressive shock. This is a late sign. Maybe you're kicking yourself because you didn't pick up on the earlier cues. Don't beat yourself up, okay? Sometimes patients, A, don't come in until they are very sick or they progress so quickly through the phases that by the time you've caught on to it, they're already starting to crump. Their LOC will be altered. They could be, maybe they were restless and agitated. Now they're just confused, like not making sense or lethargic, falling asleep in between care, difficult to rouse, things like that. You're going to see the respiratory rate go up. You're going to see work of breathing most likely increase. So we still have that global hypoxia. We still have that acidosis that the patient is trying to correct with their lungs. The body can only breathe in the 30s for so long with sternal retractions, with diaphragmatic breathing, with accessory muscle use for so long. They are going to crump out. So here, okay, I've probably mentioned this before because it is such a huge pet peeve of mine, but you come on shift and the patient's breathing 32, 34 times a minute and they're working. And you tell the doc or you tell, you know, the nurse practitioner, whoever's there, you tell them. And the answer is, or you discuss it with your nurse friend that you're getting a report from. 
Oh, they've been doing that. They've been doing that all night. Their sats are 95%. They're okay. They're not okay, people. Your patients have been doing that because they are trying to compensate. And they're not going to be able to do that for long. So a good doctor or a good nurse friend will address it and do something about it. So the they've been doing that. Excuse, if you hear yourself saying that, I want you to back up. And then try to unsay it and try to figure out what's going on with your patient. Abnormal vital signs are not normal just because they've been happening for more than 6, 8, 12, 24 hours. They've been doing that is the lazy person's excuse for not addressing an issue. Okay, soapbox climbing down now. Okay, so at this point in this class 3 progressive shock with that increased rate and increased worker breathing is a lot of times when the patient gets intubated because this respiratory effort, again, not sustainable. We've got that lactic acidosis going on. You've done an ABG, the lactate's high, big surprise, right? And then all those other signs are getting more pronounced. The tachycardia, the urine output's going down, their skin signs are getting worse. Now they're looking at multiple organ dysfunction, okay, MODS. Hopefully you're catching the shock here and treating it. But let's say the patient didn't even come into the emergency room until they were already past that stage. Maybe their family member found them down on the floor. This happens a lot. So now the patient is in the final stage of shock, class four, called refractory shock. And we call it refractory because it's refractory to treatment, meaning we're treating it and the patient's not responding. The level of consciousness is going to be very decreased. Patient is likely to be obtunded. Okay, family found them down. They're out. They are in refractory shock. Urine output will be extremely low, as low as five an hour, five mils an hour, maybe less. The respiratory rate is going to be pretty high if they're not intubated, like 35 and up. The patient cannot sustain this for long, guys. So if they're not intubated, you're probably going to be making a phone call and asking the doc to come see the patient. The skin signs on this patient are awful. You're definitely going to have delayed cap refill, maybe no refill. There could be modeling at this stage. Okay, you guys, if you see modeling, that's really bad, okay? A patient who's modeled is probably going to die soon if you don't do massive things to fix them. So skin signs, I cannot stress enough how important it is to look at the patient's skin. Their blood pressure is going to be low no matter what you do. You've given them fluids, you've got them on multiple pressors, and you're having a hard time keeping their blood pressure up. It is refractory to treatment, okay? And then maybe you've got them intubated now and their O2 sats are just not coming up. They're probably going to be on very high or max ventilator settings at this point. So this patient is extremely sick, very high mortality rate, class four refractory shock. So let's talk a little bit about the general treatment for shock, just so you can understand why you do the things that you do. And then we'll go into each of the types of shock because there's going to be obviously a little bit different things that you do for each one, depending on what kind of shock it is.
But the idea is to stabilize the patient, obviously, and then we'll target our therapies to specifically what is happening to that patient, of course. So one of the things you have to absolutely do for shock is get the oxygen delivery optimized. I mean, this patient's having all these problems because their tissues are not getting enough oxygen, okay? So give them some oxygen. Your patient likely could be intubated. Maybe at whatever stage of shock you catch them in, they can get by with a mask or a high-flow nasal cannula. You're going to give supplemental oxygen. You're going to give fluids, blood, whatever it takes to increase blood pressure so that the oxygen can travel around the body efficiently. So restore volume, fill up the bucket, okay? And we're also going to give medications depending on what kind of shock the patient is in. Maybe we need to help the pump. Maybe we need to make the bucket smaller by squeezing the vessels. So that'll all depend on what exactly is causing the patient's shock, but we're going to give some medications most likely. We also want to reduce oxygen consumption. So can we decrease things that cause the body to eat up oxygen? Can we decrease work of breathing? Intubate the patient. They're not going to have to work so hard to breathe. Give them oxygen. They're not going to have to work so hard to breathe. We're going to treat their pain, treat their anxiety, treat things that cause increased oxygen consumption. We're going to keep the patient normothermic. Shivering causes huge oxygen consumption. Being Febrile causes larger than normal oxygen consumption. So let's try to keep their temperature within a normal range. Let's decrease oxygen demands with, again, mechanical ventilation, sedation. Maybe the patient has to have a neuromuscular blocking agent. All kinds of things you can do to decrease oxygen consumption. At the same time, you are optimizing oxygen delivery. So those two things are kind of like, think about them globally when you're treating shock and doing your shock interventions, and they'll all kind of make sense. So let's talk now a little bit more about each type of shock and how we're going to recognize it and treat it. So the first one we're talking about is that hypovolemic shock, which is, again, the bucket not having enough fluid in it. Maybe your patient's bleeding out from a arterial bleed in their GI tract, or maybe they have C. diff and they've had diarrhea for four days. So we'll see some common signs with hypovolemic shock. The cardiac output is probably going to be decreased. Reminder, normal is like four to eight liters per minute. It's going to be a little bit low because of decreased venous return. Uh, Systemic vascular resistance is going to be possibly a little bit high. Decreased CVP, normal is like two to six, so it's going to be a little bit on the low side when volume states are low. The skin could be cool. Your cap refill could be delayed, depending, of course, on what stage of shock you're in. The blood pressure could be low. Urine output, again, low. And tachycardia. So tachycardia is probably one of the first signs, the most obvious sign you're going to see outwardly with hypovolemic shock. I mean, obviously the really outward sign is, oh, there's a giant pool of blood in the bed or, oh, the patient's been having diarrhea for four days. Like that's going to be your thing that triggers your suspicion. And then the tachycardia, the heart rate can adjust very quickly to try to compensate. So how are we going to treat hypovolemic shock? Well, it depends on 
what is causing it, right? So we're going to fill up the bucket. If it's blood loss, we're going to give blood. If it's fluid loss, we're going to give fluids. When you're replacing fluids and the patient's been losing a lot, like with diarrhea or vomiting or whatever, polyuria, also be sure that you're following those electrolytes as well. You want to identify and treat the source of the loss. Obviously, if they're bleeding, they're going to need some kind of intervention to stop the bleeding. If they have been vomiting for days or having diarrhea for days, can you try to control that? If they've got a C. diff infection, they are obviously going to be getting some kind of antibiotics. So try to identify and treat the source of what is causing this terrible fluid loss. Make sure your patient's got two great big IVs at all times. Trying to give fluids or blood through a PIC line is really difficult because the PIC line is very long. There's a high pressure in that line. Very hard to give a fast fluid bolus or a fast blood transfusion. So the best thing to prefer large bore IVs in those uh, ACs, crook of the elbow, perfect. May need a central line as well. And then you're going to watch your patient, you know, you're going to give a little bit of fluid and watch for improvement. So the first thing you'll probably see improve is their heart rate, then their blood pressure, then their urine output. So keeping an eye on those things will let you know if your treatments are helping and your patient is responding. Now let's talk about some of the signs and the treatments of distributive shock. So again, distributive shock, the bucket is basically too big. So the, the causes of distributive shock are really varied. And what you do is going to be very different if the patient's in anaphylaxis versus if the patient is in sepsis. So let's just talk real quick about a little, a few of these. So anaphylactic shock, that's that awful bad allergic reaction that you hear about people going into from like their peanut allergy or something. What happens here is large amounts of vasoactive substances are released from those mast cells, causing a massive, huge systemic vasodilation and increased capillary permeability. So what we have is a sudden big drop in blood pressure. Also with anaphylaxis is the respiratory compromise, the airway edema that accompanies this bad reaction. So the signs of anaphylactic shock that you're going to really clue into are, you know, of course, you'll have the hypotension and the tachycardia, but we'll have the wheezes, the hives, the uticaria, the cutaneous flushing, all those kinds of things you might see in addition to the hypotension and the tachycardia. The patient may complain of tightness in the chest, the throat swelling or feeling full, those types of things will be on your exam questions to clue you into the fact that you're looking at an anaphylaxis situation. So additional treatments for treating the anaphylactic shock patient is obviously airway, airway, airway. Lots of times these patients will be intubated pretty early, get the ET tube in there while you can before the airway completely closes off. Epinephrine, everybody knows that, right? That's why, you know, the patients carry their EpiPens. It's epinephrine. Fluids to support blood pressure. Patient may also get some histamine blockers like Pepsid, Tagamet, may get some Benadryl. Bronchodilators can be given nebulized 
treatments and steroids to reduce airway inflammation. So that's anaphylactic shock. Think chest tightness, airway, 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 epinephrine, and you'll probably do well on your exams. Septic shock is another form of distributive shock. That's going to occur when you have that severe infection. It triggers this very complicated series of events that lead to, again, massive vasodilation and increased capillary permeability. And we get that global hypotension and tissue hypoxia. So your patient in septic shock, the difference between like a septic shock patient and an anaphylactic shock patient is that your septic shock patient they are sick because of infection. So they're going to have possibly that elevated temp. If they're immunocompromised, really young or really old, they might have a lower than normal temp, like below 36. Most people are going to have a higher temp above 38-ish. They're going to be tachycardic. And note that sepsis screening is for a heart rate above 90. So not even technically tachycardia, a heart rate above 90 when you're doing your sepsis screening is going to clue you in to the fact that your patient possibly has an infection. Also elevated respiratory rate, tachycardia, tachypnea, elevated white count in most patients, your immunocompromised patient, super elderly patient might have a very low white count. The CVP and SVR so central venous pressure or systemic vascular resistance are both going to probably be low in a septic shock situation. And then you're going to have hypotension despite fluid resuscitation. So when we talk about sepsis, we talk about it as a spectrum of sepsis. Basically, there's, there's like systemic inflammatory response, there's sepsis, there's severe sepsis, and there's septic shock. And what's going to differentiate septic shock from severe sepsis is this hypotension even after you've given fluids. So if your patient comes in and they're in severe sepsis, but they're not in shock yet, or you don't know if they're in shock and you give them fluids and they're still hypotensive, bam, now they're in septic shock. Okay, so that's kind of the difference there. Other things that we're going to do for a patient in septic shock, they're going to get a lot of fluids. There's a whole bundle of things that happen with a patient in sepsis. And if you're interested in that, you can check out on the website. There is um, my, one of my latte tools. And if you don't know what latte is, check out, search for L-A-T-T-E, latte in the search bar, and then you'll find the sepsis latte probably most likely with that. And it kind of gives you an idea of what the pathway is for treating a patient in sepsis. But one of the main things is giving them fluids. It's called fluid resuscitation or targeted fluid therapy or something like that, I think they call it. And it's basically 30 mils per kilogram for that patient to fluid resuscitate them. You're going to control the source of infection. This is super key in sepsis. So getting antibiotics on board early. And because the patient is in shock, the fluids didn't help their blood pressure, but you did fill up the bucket somewhat. You're going to be probably getting them on vasopressors. And Levofed is typically what we use first, followed by vasopressin. Then if they're still really sick, they're going to get epinephrine and phenylephrine added to that as well. This will increase systemic vascular resistance by squeezing down on the diameter of the blood vessels, causing blood pressure to go up. Remember, it's like that garden hose with your thumb over the end. 
So that is short and sweet for septic shock. Let's talk a little bit about another form of distributive shock called neurogenic shock. So this occurs in patients with spinal cord injury, and it's due to a loss of sympathetic innervation. So it's more likely to present in patients with an injury at C3 to C5 level. So if you work in a trauma center, this is something that you could see with your patients that come in with a trauma. So some of the signs of neurogenic shock, it's going to cause massive vasodilation and decreased venous return. So your systemic vascular resistance, your central venous pressure, your cardiac pressure, your pulmonary artery pressures are all going to be low. Your heart rate is also going to be low. So remember, most of the time you got this refract or this kind of a compensatory tachycardia when your patient has hypotension. Well, in neurogenic shock, remember, the sympathetic nervous system isn't working right. So there's going to actually be a very high risk for bradycardia. And when you have bradycardia in combination with hypotension and massive vasodilation, your patient could do very poorly very quickly. The skin may feel warm and flushed. And you might see a widening pulse pressure with that hypotension. So what are we going to do for this patient with neurogenic shock? Obviously, if it's a spinal cord injury, maintaining C-spine, stabilizing actually the whole spine for this patient, uh, backboard, C-spine collar, trauma team, all of that. Spine stabilization is absolutely key to getting the sympathetic nervous system back into working properly. Patient may get IV fluids to help restore preload, which can help cardiac output. Vasopressors can support blood pressure. And then if they're bradycardic, treating that as needed when it comes up. Okay, so those were a few different types of distributive shock. So let's move on to cardio shock now. So this is a pump problem. So we talked about the pump and the bucket earlier. This is very clearly a pump problem. The heart is failing and is no longer able to pump adequately. So the signs for the cardiogenic shock are going to be specific more or less to whatever is causing the pump to fail. But the most common reason is left-sided heart failure. And then if you want to know what is the most common cause of left-sided heart failure, it's actually right-sided heart failure. So knowing the signs and symptoms of both sides of heart failure is very helpful and something that you need to know on your exams for sure. So left-sided heart failure. So when you think about left-sided heart failure versus right-sided heart failure and what the symptoms are, it's best just to think about the pathway of blood through the body, right? So where is the blood right before it gets to the left side of the heart? It was in the lungs. It was passing through the lungs to get oxygenated. So this is where the fluid is going to back up when the left side of the heart is failing. And this is where you're going to see a lot of your problems. So you'll have that pulmonary congestion, the dyspnea, shortness of breath. Lung sounds are going to sound coarse, wet, crackly. Heart sounds could be distant. The cardiac output could be low. Those are the kinds of things that you'll see in left-sided heart failure. So problems with the lungs because of things backing up and cardiac output low because it's not pumping out adequately, okay? Now compare that to right-sided heart failure. So where was the blood right before it got to the right atrium? 
It was coming back into the heart from the systemic vasculature, right? So this is where it's going to back up. So you'll see systemic venous congestion and right-sided heart failure. And that's the patient with that peripheral edema. You may have elevated central venous pressures. You may see jugular venous distension or JVD. And your pulmonary artery pressures could be normal or could be a little bit low. So how are you going to treat this cardiogenic shock? Well, one of the things you want to do is reduce the demands on the heart. So reducing that oxygen demand on the heart is very good while also improving oxygen supply. So giving oxygen and decreasing the workload of the heart. Some patients will need fluids based on their cardiogenic shock and what's causing it. Some patients have too much fluid and need to be diuresed. So it's going to depend on what is causing your patient's heart failure. Inotropes can improve cardiac output. This is your dobutamine or your dopamine. Possibly also milrinone. It has some good vasodilatory effects, so it can decrease afterload. So it's going to help the heart pump a little harder while decreasing afterload, reducing that work against which the heart has to pump and improving cardiac output. Vasopressors can increase the blood pressure. Again, that's through vasoconstriction. That's the thumb over the end of the garden hose. Your very sick patient may need to get an intraortic balloon pump. And if your patient's there in cardiogenic shock because they've had a massive myocardial infarction, then they are going to need to be revascularized. You can anticipate sending that guy down to the cath lab. How about obstructive shock? Whenever there's, I, I think of it as like a structure or a thing or a barrier to blood flow in the great vessels or the heart itself, we call this an obstructive shock. shock. There's an actual something obstructing the flow. Again, it's flow in the great vessels or through the heart itself. So this could be cardiac tamponade. We consider that obstructive. That fluid around the heart is a thing that causes the heart to not be able to function properly. You remove that thing, the heart can pump, right? So it's obstructive. Attention pneumothorax puts pressure on the heart, puts pressure on the great vessels. It is a thing that can be corrected. It is obstructive. A blood clot in the lungs, a pulmonary embolism can be obstructive. So the signs and symptoms obviously are going to vary a little bit based on what is causing this obstruction. So your patient with the pulmonary embolism, for instance, is going to be most likely short of breath, have increased work of breathing, have increased respiratory rate with a dropping O2 sat. They may feel some chest pain. They may have a cough. It can be a dry cough. It can be a little bit of a hemoptysis. They often have this feeling of doom about them. And you may also uh, see them have a pulsus paradoxus, which is when the systolic blood pressure increases on expiration and then drops by at least 10 millimeters of mercury on inspiration. And really the only way you're going to see this with any kind of efficiency is if the patient has an arterial line in place where you're seeing that dynamic blood pressure happening in real time. 
The tension pneumothorax patient is going to have a, a lower blood pressure because of a decrease of venous return. They'll also probably be short of breath, have increased work of breathing, O2 sats low. If it's a very bad tension pneumothorax, you might see the trachea displaced off to the side and not be able to hear any lung sounds on the side of that tension pneumothorax. And then cardiac tamponade. There's a triad here that you can memorize. It's called Beck's triad. And with that, you have an elevated CVP, which is central venous pressure, decreased blood pressure, and muffled heart tones. So those three things together could make you really suspicious of a cardiac tamponade. You could also have the pulsus paradoxus with this and very high risk for pulseless electrical activity or a PEA with a cardiac tamponade. So how we treat obstructive shock is basically remove that thing that's causing the obstructive obstruction. So again, uh, attention pneumothorax, that patient's probably going to get a needle decompression and or a chest tube to relieve that pneumothorax, relieve that pressure on the great vessels and the heart. The cardiac tamponade's going to get a procedure called a pericardiocentesis where the cardio vascular surgeon puts a needle in there and pulls the fluid out from around the heart, and then the heart can function. And then your patient with the pulmonary embolism is probably going to be on some kind of anticoagulant or even thrombolytic therapy and possibly get an IVC filter, which is a inferior vena cava filter, which is essentially put in place if they've got like DVTs in their lower extremities, and the idea is that the clot would get caught in this filter before it traveled to the lungs. So for all of your patients who are in shock or at risk for going into shock, you're going to be doing a lot of just general things that would apply to any of them. So some of those are a Foley catheter so that you can really monitor that urine output very closely, anticipate your patient getting one of those. You would probably anticipate a fair amount of lab studies, for instance, CBC, coags, chemistry panels, cardiac enzymes, ABGs, lactate, blood cultures, all that kind of stuff. You'd want to make sure your patient is on a cardiac monitor if they are not already, and why not throw a 12 lead in while you're at it, especially if they're having dysrhythmias, chest pain, any signs of cardiac compromise. You could anticipate the doc placing a central line, maybe placing a pulmonary artery catheter if you work in that type of unit, like a cardio, uh, cardiac ICU or CVS ICU, also arterial line as well. And you can get those set up, you know, your CVP measuring lines, your arterial blood pressure measuring lines, all of those things. And most of all, what I want to say is, don't be afraid to advocate and speak up about your concerns for your patient, especially in those early phases. If you can catch your patient in that initial stage of shock or even that class two stage of shock, you're going to be doing them a whole lot more good than if it's missed until they're in that very obvious stage three or stage four. So do those very thorough assessments, look at their skin, listen to their lungs, do everything that you need to do, look back at their trends and be a fierce advocate for your patients. And I know you're going to do absolutely fantastic. 
So that wraps up our podcast on the basics of shock. I hope that helped. Charlotte, shoot me a note. Let me know if that helped. And then the other thing I wanted to remind you guys about is that the boot camp is going live this July. So boot camp is for incoming nursing students. You guys are probably past that. But if you know a student who's about to start, or maybe you are an educator at a school and you want to really help set your students up for success, then please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about the boot camp and how that can help students be successful in nursing school. You can go to the website, straightanursingstudent.com. There's a tab across the top for boot camp. You click on that, you can sign up to be on the mailing list for boot camp updates. And then when we get it live, it'll be on that same page. So you can bookmark that as well. And then the other announcement that I have is that the planners, those of you that use the nursing student planner that we create are so successful now, it is becoming kind of its own thing. So a little bit separate of straight A nursing. So what we're doing is we're branding that as its own product line and it's called Big Beautiful Planner. So right now you can check it out on Instagram. There is an Instagram page or Instagram account, Big Beautiful Planner. It's just getting started, but you can get updates about it there. There will be a website, bigbeautifulplanner.com. Calm that will have all the planners on there, the nursing student one included, starting this October, maybe a little bit before if we get, get really ahead of the game, but definitely by October 1st. There's a Facebook page just starting, not really populated yet, but if that's where you like to get your updates, go to facebook.com slash planner. And as we get more into this rebranding of it, it'll get more populated. So you can check that out as well. So what we're doing is we have the nursing student planner. Don't worry, we're not doing away with it. We're not taking away the nursey facts. I did a poll and nobody wanted me to get rid of the nursey facts, even though it meant we could order more planners and do even more amazing things, but I think I figured out a way to make it all work out. So we'll still have the dedicated nursing student version. There's a possibility that we will have a generic academic version. I think we'll have that eventually. I don't know if we'll have that for January, but very possibly for next academic year, July, 2019. And then the thing that I'm the most excited about is the non-student version. So let's say you've been using the planner as a nursing student and now you're graduating and you still love the functionality of it, but you don't need, honestly, you don't need an eight and a half by 11 planner anymore. Your schedule is not that wacky, but you loved the functionality of it and you still want to use a paper planner. That's where this one comes into play. It's going to be the Fabulous Life Edition and it will be available in October to purchase for January. So it'll be for the 2019 calendar year. And I just have to say it's amazing. And then we'll also have a nursing student version for January 2019 through December. And then again, we'll do the academic version again in July. So multiple versions for multiple parts of your life and phases of your life. And very exciting to be branding that as its own thing at bigbeautifulplanner.com. We don't have the website up just yet, 
but it will be up hopefully in the next few months. But in the meantime, go to Instagram, check out Big Beautiful Planner or Facebook. But honestly, we're doing more on Instagram with it right now in this very early stage. So those are the announcements. I hope you guys have a great day. Keep the emails and the comments and the iTunes reviews coming. I very much listen to what you guys have to say. And I'm always looking for ways to make the podcast and the website better. So take care and we will check back in in a couple of weeks. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.